Welcome. This is Oliver Schirach, your host of the Oliver Schirach Show. And today I'm here with Charlie Beswick, an author, charity founder, and speaker from Staffordshire or something like that in the UK. Um, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. Um, and we solved our technical problems we had, and I found out how to avoid them in the future. So, Charlie, um, we met over LinkedIn because we were commenting on some post of someone we are both following and we got to talk a few weeks ago and we said, yeah. let's, let's do it. And um, you have a little bit of a big different background than other uh, people I have, and, but that's also what I want. I want to have like uh-huh. a diversity of people on the show. And let's see, I mean, I, I'll get going as I usually do. And then we are f- following the flow and uh, Sounds good to me. unravel your story and your challenges and how you overcome them and what is the message to the world. Okay, sounds good. Okay, so we know now you're an author and charity founder and a speaker living in the UK. You're a mother of uh, twins. And how would you describe yourself? Uh, like like in three things or four things, like privately Ooh. or business? Okay, um, I would say that I am very driven. Okay. Um, I would say that I'm brutally honest. <laughs> <laughs> Not just honest, you have to have the, add the brutally on there. And I would say that I'm a positive person in general. Okay, super. And uh, how, how does that express how would you say this very driven how how do you how does this express in your life okay so i i like i love learning i love being at the start of journeys not to say i don't enjoy being on a journey but i'm somebody that always wants to be better and be more so every time i get to a position in my career where i feel that i've given the best i can that i'm top of my personal game I'm looking for another challenge I always want to be growing I always want to be learning I always want to be um yeah I guess growing is the word really so and when I love a love a project I'm very passionate about the project I eat sleep and breathe the project um so my fiance would tell you it's it's too intense for his liking but that's just my style I'm very I'm very passionate about the things I believe in Okay, so that's, wow, there's a lot of words in there. Passion, growing, love to learn, driven. And uh, how is the brutally honest and uh, positivity expressing? So the honesty thing, um, I've always been very, okay, no, I haven't. I'm lying. I was going to say I've always been an honest person, but I think I'm more of an honest person now because of the lessons I learned from not being honest. Okay. And that's... My son is disturbing here, <laughs> as I told him. Jamie, we can hear you. <laughs> okay. Sorry, people. My son is home today, um, so he might pop in once in a while. So you, you say you were not always honest, but you, you learned to be honest through events we will uncover during the show. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the honesty is something that I embraced um and then the positivity similarly through my experience is something that i've had to draw on 
Um, I think positivity is a choice and I, I choose to try and find the positives wherever I can. Okay, super. That's, that's very, very nice to hear. And um, what I also use to ask my guests to break the ice <laughs> is like a color. In a, you're the new color in a color box. What yeah. color would that be and why would you be that color? I would be red <laughs> um, because it's strong. It's a strong color. It doesn't work with every other color, but the colors it does work with, it looks amazing. And because some people are scared of red, some people don't want to always be red. It's quite a bold color. So I think I'm probably, particularly with the honesty thing, I'm the one per, I'm the one person that likes being a little bit out there and other people look at me and think I'm either um, very good as a role model or just crackers and a bit mad. So yeah, red. Red would be me. Yeah, uh, it, it fits your description, for me at least. Uh, yeah, good. Our guests, uh, our listeners can of course disagree on that. Um, yeah. So... <clears throat> do you have another yeah i mean we talked about your biggest secret which is what you're doing but uh if you're up to it do you have a secret people don't really know about you like something you're knitting every evening or <laughs> you're gathering some pots with cats on it wow um do you know i'm an open book i don't think there's much that people don't know about me um I guess the only things I hold back are is information about my family because I am on social media, so okay. I protect their privacy. Um, but with me, I'm literally, I'm all out there. So I don't think I, I don't think I do. Um, okay. I guess the only thing people don't know, and that's because I, I think it's a bit boring, is that I'm obsessed with property programs. So watching <laughs> programs where people sell houses or renovate houses and make them look lovely again or you know I, I, I'm obsessed with that so most people would binge watch series whereas I, I love to watch property programs which is very boring and probably not you know the reason why I don't share it but I guess that's it everything else people know about me okay I don't think it's boring I'm actually annoyed because we have the Romanian um chip to watch on satellite and they used to have a property show where they renovate houses and I thought that was kind of interesting as a source of inspiration for yeah. future projects so yeah, don't feel I, it's I, boring just because you like <laughs> well you yeah. cannot we cannot watch it anymore I love to watch actually I don't remember his name from was it Canada or U, the US but it was at least there around Vancouver Seattle um, they're okay. coming from and he was going a lot around a lot of the U.S. to build these um, ha um, tree houses. Oh wow! I've never heard about him. Um, no. He he made this really crazy stuff, like a hundred thousand dollars up and whatever. Of course, also cheaper things. But yeah, um, yeah. I love to watch it when they were building houses in like one tree or three trees in the backyard in the forest and. Oh wow! Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds Some, cool. Sometimes, like a hotel, you know, like different tree houses for um, wow, for a hotel complex. Okay, that could be something for you. <clears throat> um, if I remember, I will put it in the show notes. Okay. How he's called? So, Jamie, <laughs> my son is throwing stuff. 
Um, Jamie, you have to go out. I told you. I have an interview. And people can hear you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. So now let's go to your story. Um, mm -hmm. What is it that brought you to be an author, charity founder, and a speaker? What, what is the story behind it? Well, you know, I don't want okay. to start like I was born in and then I went through school. <laughs> I won't take you back quite that far. Um, I'll, I'll take you back about 15 years instead. When I um, gave birth to my twins, as you've, as you've mentioned, I have twin boys, Oliver and Harry. And when the boys were born, we realised that Harry had been born with a very rare craniofacial condition. So essentially, he'd been born with only half a face. Um, it's called Golden Heart Syndrome. It, it is very rare. And we weren't prepared. We had no idea that he was going to be born with any sort of disfigurement. And so it sent me into a bit of a spiral because I completely blamed myself. Um, I was full of guilt. I grieved. And it was a real grief. It was a grief for a life he would never know and that us as a family would never know. Um, and I went on quite a destructive journey with my self-talk, which I never shared with anybody else which is one of the topics I, I talk about now as a speaker is the power of self-talk because I know firsthand how liberating and also how damaging it can be. Um, and so I, I struggled for quite a while. My marriage broke down. I had a, a breakdown of my mental health. Um, I was a full-time teacher at the time, so I had to change my career. And in 2017, I found myself with some time on my hands and I looked through notes that I'd been making, diaries that I'd been keeping while the boys were growing. And I mm -hmm. compiled it all together, not really sure what I was going to do with it. And I let a few people read it and they just said, you need to publish this. It's brilliant. You need to let other people share this. So I did that in 2017 and then that became a bestseller. Um, and it's read internationally all over the world. And I get feedback from people thanking me for being so honest, thanking me for writing down what they are too scared to say. Um, and that's really powerful mm. for me. And then following that, I set up the charity, which um, means I go into schools and I educate children and young people on facial disfigurement. And I give people the skills to deal with and to interact with anybody who looks slightly different. Anyone who doesn't fit the norm, if you like, of society. And I do that because one day I will die and leave Harry without me to be his voice and to be his protector. So I do that in the hope that other people will find kindness and acceptance and understanding and friendship with with my son and um, he is also severely autistic so mm -hmm. even though he's 15 he functions around about three and a half so his his language is very very um delayed and, and very sort of you know he doesn't he can't have a conversation he doesn't know how to have a conversation he just has keywords um and so i think the speaking led naturally from there you know i'd written the book i was sharing my journey i run the assemblies and workshops for the charity i'm a teacher i'm a chatterbox i love to talk so it naturally led from there really wow so there's a lot of um information you can share with the world and help 
I can see going yeah. through all these um, uh, problems. And uh, you, 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 you talked about you were not prepared for that. I mean, you, how was it? I mean, you, you, your um, whole pregnancy must have been good. You, you, yep. you mentioned you're not smoking, not drinking during yep. the pregnancy. And then we, when we talked the first time to, you know, see if there is an interview here, you mentioned as well, before that, you were very perfectionism. Absolutely. So how did that, I mean, how did that influence your negative self-talk? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I... I grew up wanting to make the people around me proud for, for lots of reasons I won't bore your listeners with today. Um, but it was very much a part of who I was that I had to make people proud. I couldn't disappoint people. I had to do the best that I could. So when Harry was born and he was in my eyes at that point, a reflection of me disappointing people, of me not being perfect, of me letting people down, maybe making people feel ashamed of me and and my boy that looked so different. Um, I I turned that on myself. So I became my own worst enemy. And I would tell myself things like that all of the time. You've let people down. You failed people. You failed your son. And I have to say, all of my feelings were nothing about Harry. I look back at photographs of Harry now and yes, he looks very different, but he was still a very beautiful baby. But right then at that time, I couldn't see that because when I looked at Harry, all I saw was my failure. All I saw was my inability to be a good mum to him, that I'd let him down, that I'd failed him. Um, And so that self-talk was relentless and it was very negative and it was very destructive to me. Yeah. So how long was this period? You you talk about 15 years ago, you, you the boys were born and in 2017 you piled up uh, all these these notes you had there's yeah. like 12 years oh, yeah 12 years in between yeah yeah so i i would say my negative self-talk continued for about the first six years intensely probably the oh. first 12 months the first oh. year quite intense and then it stayed with me for the next five years so Um, When the boys were around about six years old, I became very um, unwell mentally. Um, And my mum took me off to the doctors and said that I needed help. And I took antidepressants then. And I think it was at that point that I realised I'd actually always had postnatal depression, but it had never been identified or I'd never had any support. No one realised that? No. No, I'm, I'm... In the same way that when people take their lives, other people can be very surprised and say, we never saw that coming. That person looked so happy, so calm. Um, Similar to that, I just smiled and I told everybody it would be fine, that I was okay. Um, And I just lied. I I call it the lie we wear. I told everybody that I was fine and I carried on smiling. And all the time I was crumbling inside. How do you think that it's possible for people not to realize that someone amidst them is suffering so much yes it's very very possible it's very possible 
and I think that's why it's important that we need to talk mm. uh, and people talk a lot about talking but they talk less about listening yes so you know now I think it's important that we are talking with each other but listening with care listening to the words people are saying listening to the way they are saying it listening to any changes you know it's not just good enough to be talking with each other or at each other anymore it has to be a two-way process okay um, I can hear myself <laughs> uh, there was a, a strong echo sorry guys um, hearing myself now I've heard a lot of time through my life because I'm a very talkative person that I should start to listen more uh, and that was all I got <laughs> uh, and then you stand there and you feel so oh listen more but how right um, a year ago I got some tips you know like lean forward when you talk uh, lean backwards when you listen kind of to mm -hmm. give the body a physical impulse to actually learn when to listen and when to talk yeah but but you, you talking and communication is such more so much more subtle right and especially yeah. if someone is lying about how they really feel yeah um so how can we teach or teach others or learn ourselves to see through the fog and actually see the yeah. person for who they are or i think i think first of all it's it's hard to do unless you have background and history with somebody so the this sort of listening you can't really always do with somebody you've not known for long because it's about knowing people's patterns. So um, I'll give you a good example. When I was teaching, I used to go into school and my, my parent teach, my partner teacher, she would know what I'd been listening to on the radio in the car from the minute I walked in. She would know if I'd been listening to calm music and quiet music from the way I walked into the room and she would know if I'd been listening to crazy pop, loud, bouncy music just from my energy. She could tell what I'd been listening to on the radio, um, which I found really bizarre at the time. But now I know that she was just in tune with my body, my energy, my flow, the, the volume of my voice. I talk very loud and I get excited. Um, the speed, I talk very fast when I'm excited or when I'm, um, you know, full. Um, and she was aware of all of those cues, which I think is really important. So it's not just listening. It's about knowing how that person presents to you. And if you see a change, then it's about pushing and just saying, are you okay? And when they say, yes, I'm fine. It's about not leaving it there and saying, honestly, because I think there's a change and I, and I want to help and I want to reach out. And sometimes that's all people need is just permission. Ah, so give them permission to to be honest. Absolutely. Okay, yeah, it's 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 um. <laughs> I want to do justice to ask you the right questions, and it's it's it's. <laughs> you see, I'm 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 struggling a bit because I've been stressed and depressed as well, but I've been brutally honest. Yep. And um, I've also felt like to take my life, and I'm. Mm -hmm. I have no problem saying that on my podcast because I know other yeah. podcasters do the same. Yeah. Um, and 
and the thing is then just some good friends which think they know you come back and say yeah but you will never do that you have a good life you have a family you have a house and then you have such a good life why would you do that i don't believe you um if you would hear a message like that how would you feel or how would you have felt when you were depressed i think that gives i think that adds more pressure because people would say to me a lot of the time you're so positive you're so strong you're so funny you know you're always smiling and that sets the bar that's some, that sets somewhere that you have to live to then that's an expectation that people are placing on you and then you think well I can't be honest I can't tell people that I'm making and I'm crying a lot and I just want to curl up in bed I can't do that because that's not how people see me and I don't want them to see me in that way and so it's that's harder it creates more issues for you and adds more pressure which I think now is very it's one of the reasons why I share my bad days um, as much as I share my good days because I think you know life is is black white and shades of gray and it's important to share it all okay so that's why I say the honesty it's so important. It's, it's important for me. It's important that I am honest and that I show that I'm not perfect because that gets rid of the barriers. That gets rid of people's expectations. They still say I'm positive. They still say you're a great role model. They still say all these lovely things, but they also acknowledge that I am those things because I allow myself to be down. I allow myself to be have bad days. Um, but equally, I don't unpack and live there. That's one of the things I often say, have a bad day, but don't unpack and move in there. You know, you have to acknowledge a bad day, sit in it for a while, and then find the strength to move on to the next day. It's not yeah. about dwelling and becoming a victim. Yes, and um, so what is a victim? I mean, we, I've been told you're a victim, you're a victim, you're a victim. And I'm like, I didn't, I sometimes can see it, but many times... Uh, in my actions, I don't see it because I ask for help. So how can I be then a victim? So how, how would you describe what is, uh, what are the um, characteristics? What are the signs um, for being a victim? So if a listener listens and says, hmm, am I a victim or not? Or Okay. Yeah. Um, I think for me, and I, I, victim is maybe the wrong word because it's, it's, got lots of negative connotations um but we'll stick with it for now because i don't think there's a better word to explain it um but i think a victim is very passive in their own life so they might reach out for help and i'm not saying this about you because i don't know your history well enough so yeah. this isn't a personal um sort of comment um, but they might reach out for help and get advice from other people but then do nothing with it so their self-talk might be i can't do that I can't change. This is me. This is who I am. So victims are often trapped in that cycle of negative self-talk. They often don't have the belief that they can break out of that. And I do believe from my family history and from people very close to me, that sometimes in doing nothing, you are choosing the state you are in. So sometimes people will choose to be passive in their own lives um for lots and lots of reasons and, it, and it's definitely not easy to break out of that cycle but for me it's if you've got a listener now who has an issue 
if they're having people saying, we, you know, I'm talking to you about this, we've said this, you know you can do this, then I would suggest that they've got stuck in a cycle of negative self-talk and that they don't have the self-belief to break out of that. And I think that keeps them trapped on the spot. If you're not a victim, you are moving forwards and that can be a crawl, that can be one footstep a week, but you are moving forwards. A victim is, is trapped in that one place. Okay, yeah. That makes sense. Uh, now, sorry, now I'm a bit, I'm, I'm so lost. Uh, <laughs> sorry, we did say it was going to be a different interview, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, we all oh, we were talking so fast the last time. Um, I put my own pressure. Okay, let's 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 remove all the pressure of doing a perfect show here and just continue the way we talked last time. Uh, it yeah. was it was perfect. So, but I love this what you already said. How to listen? Um, yeah. this was really difficult for me. Um, I got a lot of advice, or I didn't get advice. Many uh -huh. times I was just said, "Do it yourself." when I asked for help because I tried already myself and I couldn't go forward. Um, that's my own story. Like I tried, ah, I'm just getting bored of doing everything by myself. Yeah. But I know real success stories when you listen to whoever you want to listen, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, and then, then, then yeah. you have to do the things yourself. Yeah. But I'm also the believe one of the believers our, one person cannot achieve as much as a group. Uh -huh. Like if you have like three or four people together, it's not you achieve four times more, you achieve like 20 times more, 30 times more. Yeah. And what if, if you have like this aspirations uh, that you want, you just have this feeling you can achieve so much more, but you need to find the right people. How to get out of that trap when you're just looking for people to do something, um, but you don't really find them and still continue to grow step by step. So not to get stuck somewhere. I think you have to be very honest with yourself and ask yourself what it is that you are looking for in other people. Because if you imagine you have a bucket <laughs> with maybe five holes in the bottom and you can plug up one of those holes, but you are looking for four other plugs. You yeah. are looking for four other people to plug that bucket so that you can fill it with water and be successful. So, and that's great. But I would be saying, what are you looking for in those other four people that you don't feel you have yourself? Because they are filling the plugs that you feel you have. Um, and I'm not saying that you have to be perfect, but maybe you want somebody who is really business minded that can drive you in terms of facts and figures. Yeah. Maybe you want somebody who's more creative, who's somebody that gives you ideas that think out of the box a little bit, you know, and all of those things are fine, but you have that already within you. You just lack the confidence and the self-belief to know that you do. And I think when you can find the strength and when you can find those characteristics in yourself, and they might only be weak ones, they might only be, you know, we chatted before, I, I said I'm not the most creative of people. Um, I have some creativity and I know that, but then when I'm talking with other people, they help bring that out of me. So it's about working with people that complement what you are as a person, not give it to you completely. So it's about developing those skills that you, that you see in other people so that you have a bit of that already, 
and they just top you up. Okay. Does that make yeah. sense? Yes, yes, that's a very nice um, description. Um, okay. <laughs> because because I'm also a jack of many trades. I mean, I do a lot of things. There's some things I just don't like to do. Um, yeah. But I actually know I could do them. I just don't like them to do. And um, yeah. now if you take it from my side, because I cannot talk for other people, but I know there must be other people with similar issues because... Yeah. I'm a human being, so I'm not that special in that case. We are all special, but we have similar yep. issues. Of course. Um, now, there's, of course, also the advice of if we go that way, um, and then we try to take a U-turn, <laughs> yep. that uh, some people advise you to be perfect in an area, so you're like the, the master of that skill. Others yep. say you should master everything, not master everything, but be very spread all around. So, and I do understand it works for one person, it works this way, the other person works that way. Definitely. So how do you find out wh where you're falling in? Because I don't want to learn certain things because they're just boring me. So why yes. should I spend the time in there? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you, do, you have to play to your strengths, absolutely. Um, but if there's things that you find boring, I, let's say, um, what do I find really boring? Accounts, okay? So doing my accounts bores the life out of me. Wow, you know, it's, it's hours of my life I'm never getting back. So I have an accountant, but I also do my, I don't do my own accounts, but I keep an eye on things a little bit in the background. So I have a rough idea of where she's going with, with my own money. Um, because I think if you allow other people to do everything for you, then you are giving away control. You are giving away control. And I know Oprah Winfrey always said, um, always sign your own check. So delegating, you can delegate everything, but you have to keep an eye at the same time in the background on things with people you know that you trust um and so for me absolutely fine that you don't enjoy doing everything but just have a slight knowledge a little bit of awareness so at least you can have a conversation about it because it's your life so it's fine not to have an interest but i think you have to have an awareness and they're different things you know you can be interested in something and do it for fun who does accounts for fun i don't know I'm sorry if you have any accountants listening, but wow, it's, it's not my, my bag. Um, but, you know, that's, that's absolutely fine to do those things for fun. But I would just say to have an awareness because that awareness creates the control in your own life. Super. Uh, I think you're very right. And my thought on that is also, as I said, I don't like everything to do, but you cannot know if you like it if you didn't try it. To Correct. some to some degree. Yeah, okay. definitely. So let's see how we make the U-turn <laughs> before we go. <laughs> so, how, uh, so back to your story. Um, we know 2017. You you gave these notes to um, yep. to friends, I guess, uh, yep. family members. Yeah. How did they react? Besides that, they mentioned you should published this were they shocked about you or about what they were reading about you or yeah yeah even my own sister my own sister is 10 years younger than me so wow. um i kind of, i've raised i helped to raise her a little bit particularly as we got a bit older um and she knows me very well 
but there were times there were parts in the book where she said I had to put it down because it it felt too raw it felt so so hard to read that about my sister um and when people read my book they they always say they can hear my voice um so it's like me talking to them and she found that quite hard sometimes um and then I had another couple of friends and they just said wow we were with you at this time and we had no idea you were struggling to this degree um and I get what you're saying about people saying we don't believe you you know, we don't believe that you felt like this. Well, that's fine. That's their choice. I don't need people to approve of whether I yeah. struggled or not. You know, I know how I felt. Um, and that's enough. It doesn't matter to me that other people don't believe me or might question me. It doesn't, that's their opinion. And what people think of me is none of my business. So, um, yeah, they were quite shocked. Uh, and then when they read it and they saw the transformation from right at the beginning to where I am now, they, that's what made them say, wow, you need to give this to people who might be at the beginning of the journey, still trapped like you were, that need that hope that things can get better. Okay. So um, when you talk about the journey, these notes you gathered in 2017, they were up to 2017 or did you stop in between somewhere? So I stopped around about 2014 and from there i just used my memory of the last couple of years and facebook statuses oh. and text messages and things like that <laughs> to piece the gap in the in the middle just to as a prompt to help me remember situations and things like that um, but yeah prior to that i kept diaries i read harry's school reports i read his medical notes oh. i read his operation permission slips you know i i've had to sign forms um, he's had six life-threatening operations and 20 smaller procedures. So I've had to sign forms six times to say that I accept he might die. So reading those back and looking at handing my child over to somebody in the knowledge that I might never get them back was really quite painful at times. Um, so, you know, I looked through all of that and, and, in, and invested that in the book. Wow. Um, now... I have two kids and I would not want to get into that situation. How, how did you manage to be able to sign something? I mean, it's, it's your son. Yes. But your son is his own being, right? You're not, yeah. I mean, we are responsible for our kids until they can be self-sustainable um, mm -hmm. and understand life. But how can you sign something like that for another living yeah. being? I think, there's, there's two parts about what you said there. The first being that I always found it very, very difficult because when you're making a decision for yourself, you weigh up the pros and the cons and you just decide, you make an informed decision for you, your body and your life. Whereas for Harry, as an infant, that was, it was very, very difficult. Um, but the second thing you said was that you make those decisions for your child until they're self-sustainable. Harry will never be self-sustainable. Harry will never live independently he will very unlikely have a job and a relationship because he, his autism is too severe for him to do that and one day ultimately I'm not going to be around and Harry will become an individual in society or if I hadn't have intervened and helped with the surgery he would have been an individual in society with half a face and the intellect of a young child now, to me, that makes him a vulnerable target in society for, ex you know, sort of people to exploit him, to bully him, 
to manipulate him, to use him, to harm him. And so for me, right at the beginning, when we were signing those forms, it was about protecting Harry, protecting his future, giving him the best chance he can have of being accepted for the person he is, because he has some incredible qualities. Everybody that meets him absolutely loves him. Um, and I wanted people to have the chance to get past his physical disfigurement and get to know him. So that was always my motivation. Um, and now he's older. I say no to more operations than I say yes to because I don't think that he needs it. Okay, uh, who, who, who tells you that he needs operations? Is that the doctors or? So, yeah, so that's surgeons. So we meet with surgeons regularly and they will give me options. So the first lot of surgeons that we met with was in Birmingham in the UK. And they've done some incredible things with countless numbers of children. But my experience was that they were very much telling us what Harry needed. They were telling us he needs this operation. He needs this operation. Um, and, and in the book, I explained my, my decision for leaving Birmingham and going to Liverpool, which is in the north of England. And they were very much, these are your options. It's your choice. These are the options for Harry. This is what we can do. This is what might happen if we do this operation. This is what will happen if we don't do the operation. And so that for me was much better because they gave us the choice and it was an informed choice. So some of his operations we had to do because his, his brain was growing into a space that should never have been there. So he had to have his skull reshaped. So there were some things that we had to do for his health. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they gave me the options of, of doing nothing and of doing surgery. So it was always an informed choice from my point of view. Wow. Okay. I mean, that's um, unfortunate. That's also <laughs> looking at the, the time we are taking this into in the Corona lockdown. Um, yeah. it, it feels a bit like what we are told to do now, right? Like we have to, we have to, we have to. Yeah. Choices are taken away. And, um, and you say when you moved from, from one group of doctors to, or from one hospital to another, uh, you still had the same situation, but these doctors were different. They were looking at it in a different way and giving you the option. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's generally what we need to have. It's an option. Um, yes. And choice, because with choice comes control. Everything comes back to our, our levels of self-control. And as you've said, lots of life is very prescriptive now. We are being told what we can do. We are being told what we can't do. And long after lockdown has been lifted, the legacy of that is going to be that people have struggled with their mental health. People have really battled with having that choice taken away from them. Yes. Um, but let's hope it's going to only stay for these few months and not. Yes. Oh, absolutely. It's not going to last forever, you know, and, and mental health struggles often don't last forever, but I think yeah. it's important to recognize when people are struggling as well. Yeah. So let's not go back into <laughs> to the, yeah depression part so yep. you you mentioned you had six operations which were life-threatening and you mentioned uh -huh. the brain was growing so it's it's your son's head not growing or so the front of his head so his forehead was um, a little bit further forward than it should have been so there was oh. more space in the cavity so his oh. brain was growing further forwards into the space oh. so um, we had to the surgeons had to take his skull apart um, to shave some off 
to then put it back together again like a jigsaw. Oh. Um, so he and he had that operation twice. So he has two scars across his head from one ear over the top to the other, zigzag style, um, where hair doesn't grow because it doesn't grow on scar tissue. Um, so he has this scar and I, I kiss his scar and I stroke his scar um, and I tell him how brave he is. And, and I see that and I just remember what a tough cookie he is. <laughs> okay, so this is kind of the operations. Um, did you do something with his eyes? Because he said you want to yeah. protect him. So he got the glass eye or something or? Yeah, so that making the eye socket took several operations. And then we had to line the socket so you can have a wet, I'm going into to cranio <laughs> talk now. You can have a wet socket or you can have a dry socket. And we decided to go with a wet socket, which meant that the skin out of the inside of his mouth had to be taken out um, as skin grafts. And that went into his eye socket. So he couldn't eat for 48 hours. He couldn't even swallow his own saliva for 48 mm -hmm. hours. He, he lost so much weight um, to create the eye socket. And then he has a false eye. He has a glass eye now. Okay, yeah. So that helps definitely for when people meet him. Yes, definitely. Because we are wired to, back from caveman days, you know, we are wired to look at somebody and know if they are friend or foe. And that is based on somebody having two symmetrical eyes, a nose, two ears, a mouth. In all the places we expect, that tells our brain that this is another human. So when you see somebody who only has one eye and one ear and one nostril, it alerts the danger part of your brain on a neurological level. We're not aware of that. That's not a conscious issue. Um, but people then feel startled when they look at Harry. They feel threatened. They would feel worried. So for me, it was about trying to get rid of that bias instantly and trying to make him appear as normal, in air quotes, I hate that word, um, or as symmetrical as possible so that people's first impression of him wasn't a neurological fright. Wow, yeah. Um, I can see that problem. I mean, and it's just a small child and then people feel afraid and when people feel afraid, they will be starting to bully and do all the... Yeah. We've uh, had situations where children have, have seen Harry and screamed and run away or burst out crying, burst into tears. Um, and then they, or sometimes they go and get their friends and their friends will come and point and stare and laugh at him. Um, in a group. So we have, uh, he's, he's experienced a wide variety of reactions from other children. Wow. Um, I hope he also had the positive reactions or? Um, you tend to get the positive reactions when people give him a chance. Okay. Uh, sometimes you get indifference. Sometimes people just will look at him, kind of squint a little bit, like he looks a bit weird, but I don't know why. And then they'll just get on with their own life. Um, and sometimes people will come over and, and maybe speak with him or bounce with him because he likes going to trampoline parks. Uh, and then once they realise he's not scary, they will, they'll chat with him. So that's lovely. That's lovely to see. Okay, I mean, um, you just mentioned sometimes people just squint and then they move on. Are you used to get attention with him? And, and it's somehow subconsciously you expect that people give attention to him? Well, when, if I walk down the road, I don't expect that everyone looks at me. And I'm not yeah. annoyed if someone looks at me and then just continues. Because I might remember, yeah. remind someone of someone else, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And that was one of the issues um, with my husband. So 
he used to say that I went out looking for people to look at Harry. I went out on high alert, expecting people to stare at Harry. Whereas my, my husband didn't, he just would go out. Um, but the difference was I was going out with Harry every single day, whereas he was at work and he might go out with Harry once a fortnight or once every now and again. Yeah. Um, and I was seeing the reaction to Harry more so. So yeah, definitely. I was conscious that people would be reacting to him in a certain way. Yeah, and then it's of course weird if people don't react. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. So how, how does that affect uh, Oliver, his brother? So when Oliver was very small, obviously he didn't realize what was going on. And then when he got to about five years old, he noticed and he would become very defensive of Harry. He would um, want to go and punch the children that were being nasty to him and defend his brother. Um, he would feel quite angry. Uh, and I would have to talk to him about the way that we manage our emotions. And that's a, that's a big ask for a five-year-old to be dealing with these big emotions of, you know, protective and anger. Uh, and, and I had to coach him in, in being emotionally resilient from a very young age. Uh, so he's very emotionally aware now. But the flip side of that is that he's so emotionally aware that sometimes he can become anxious. He's too emotionally aware now. And they're 15 years old. They're 15 now, yeah. So you mentioned also up to their sixth um, uh, birthday, you were depressed. So how did you then manage? At the age of five, you were depressed and stressed and, and you had to somehow teach your son yeah. to handle these emotions while it must have been very difficult for yourself to handle. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and possibly there's a reality that I didn't do that very well. You know, possibly there's a reality that Oliver learned his anxiety from growing up with a mum that was depressed and that his coping mechanism is a result of the fact that I kept trying, but I wasn't doing a very good job myself. And I have to accept that that's a possibility without taking on responsibility because at the time I just did my best and we can't ever beat ourselves up for doing our best. Um, and you know, don't get me wrong. I wasn't, when I say I was depressed, I was functioning. I wasn't sort of walking around, um, constantly under this gray cloud. Um, and so I would talk to Oliver in the way that I, I felt that he deserved. And I just tried to remove myself as a, as a struggling person and be his mum and be the one person that needed to help him and just teach him how to be. I was going to say how to be a man at five years old. And probably that's, you know, that's what I was doing. I was teaching him how to be a grown up very, very soon. Again, more pressure for him. But I would just say, you know, that's not what we do. That We don't punch people. That's not who we are. We just have to understand that they don't know Harry. They don't love Harry like we do. And they're missing out on how we feel sorry for those people because they're missing out on Harry and we know that he's lovely. Um, and so I guess, I guess I taught Oliver to suppress at a very young age. So not helpful, maybe in some ways, but again, you know, I was just trying my best and it's important okay. that we recognize that. Okay. In our so now, um, I guess Oliver's in a normal school and Harry is in a special school. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And do we, do they have a lot of friends at home at the moment or? O Oliver has friends. Yeah. Oliver has friends. He's, he's quite old headed for his age. So he's like 15 going on 25. Um, so he, he has a, a, a smaller group of good friends. He's not somebody that has 
a massive circle of acquaintances. He just has a small circle of good friends. Um, Harry has friends at school, um, often that I don't know about because he can't tell me what's happened at, at school in the day, but his staff do. His staff will tell me. Um, he's got one very best friend at the moment who absolutely adores him. Um, his name is Daniel and he loves Harry. He, he has playtime with Harry on the yard. Um, he helps him do his jobs and, and they just, they love each other. But I didn't know about that until school told me because Harry hasn't got the language to tell me about Daniel. Um, so yeah, I'm sure Harry has more friends than I'm aware of. <laughs> yeah, I was just also thinking about uh, you have the kids home, right? Because your husband yeah. left you with the kids. So I, I left. I left him. Are oh, you left him? So okay. I left him. Yeah, um, and I took the kids. So we share the boys. We share them fifty-fifty, and it works well. Yeah. Okay, you share them. Okay. So, but you have you have both boys at a time, right? You don't yes, have like correct. one. Uh, and when the friends from Oliver come over to visit you, they're used to have Harry around. Yeah, and... yeah. yeah, they're fine. They they accept Harry. They like Harry. They get on with him. They've just grown up with him, so they just accept that's who he is. Uh, okay, it's, so that's no like difference. so it's it's a long term relationships Oliver has there with his friends. Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> and I think even when he's, you know, one day Oliver will have a girlfriend, and he will have to explain to a girlfriend that he has a brother that squeals and jumps and flaps and is obsessed with very random things you know and and if she loves oliver then she will love the part of him that loves harry too yeah and i think that just comes as a package wow uh yeah so what was the biggest learning for you uh during that time wow Okay, so the biggest learning for me was, I think, looking back, that, that I was good enough, that I tried my best, and I constantly beat myself up. I constantly worried that I was making the wrong choices or not doing enough or being a bad mum for Oliver or being a distant mum for him or not doing enough therapy for Harry. Or I, I constantly questioned myself and told myself, you can do more, you're not doing enough, you're not doing enough, you're letting them down. And I think if I could go back in time now to Charlie then, I would sit her down and I would say, in the future you will realise that what you are doing now is more than enough. And, and actually the best thing you can do for your boys right now is to love yourself a little bit more. Okay, so that's... And if you look back in your teenage age time, you know... Would that be the same message? 100%. Okay. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. I was somebody had, I've had two stepdads and both of them uh, decided to leave my mum. And I took that as a sign that they didn't like me as young people. And I, I took that as a sign as I wasn't enough. So yeah, that's absolutely a, a conversation I would have with my younger self. Even my five-year-old self, I would go back and say, you are enough and you always were that's important that you know and that's basically the message we get from all these different gurus shamans teachers spiritual people they all say you yeah. are enough yeah yeah um, but no but saying it and believing it are two very different things aren't they yes but i can see the smile you have i mean you have to smile in the eyes and the face like the whole thing um is lit up when i look at you when you talk about yeah. it um yeah, I mean, I can see it for myself as well. I start to feel myself, 
enjoy myself more and more and more. Um, if, if this lockdown would have happened a year ago, I would be completely devastated. Uh, I'm sure I would be angry and shouting and screaming and I don't know what. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm just frustrated about the, the way we are handling it, but I cannot do much more than look for myself and try to, yeah. you know, yeah, <laughs> raise absolutely. the awareness. And, yeah. and for you, it's kind of the same with this. So it's basically, how do you see what happened? I mean, there was not, no one is fault or, but giving birth to, to twins and, and I mean, twins alone, it's already a difficult thing for me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then having one of them having autism and he had autism from the start. Did you, did you find that? Yeah, he, he wasn't diagnosed. No, he wasn't diagnosed until he was about um, two and a half. Okay. And that's of course the normal development as a baby. It's difficult yes. to see, right? Yeah. Yeah. Did he have already operations by the, the age of two and a half? Or? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he'd already had his first operation was 18 months old. Okay. Yeah, so when you look at this whole thing, what happened, was that something which put you on the right path as a person, to grow as a person? Uh, would you think you, you would be able to enjoy life as much as you do now without this happen? Or I think... So having my boys was, was the most traumatic day of my life. And that makes me sad because no, nobody, no parent should ever say that the day their baby is born was the most traumatic day of your life. But it was for me. My boys were also premature. So they were only, they were eight weeks early. Um, and I ended up having an emergency cesarean that I didn't want. So there was lots of issues as well before we found out that Harry had got his disfigurement. Um, Again, I had that lack of control and, and the boys were going to be early. They were only £3.9 when they were born. So, you know, they were teeny tiny babies. Um, and yeah, I think that's, it shaped me in a way that I could never have expected. L loving Harry has been my greatest challenge and the most beautiful gift. And it has transformed the person I am. He, my, both of my boys took the broken pieces of a woman and, and created a mother. And I don't think I would be, I, I know I wouldn't be the mother I am today without them. I wouldn't be the advocate. I wouldn't be the speaker. I wouldn't be the author. I wouldn't be the partner, the daughter, the sister that I am today, had it not been for my path. Yeah. And I'm very, very grateful for that. Do you have any, um, uh, how do you say, habits or routines you do to keep yourself in a, in a high vibration in this um, state of mind? That's a are good question. Are you meditating? Are you journaling? Are you, I don't know. Because I've, I've tried both. So I, I know we, we, talk, we talked about the miracle morning. So I tried, we, did, we talked about that, didn't we, last time. Um, I tried the miracle morning. I did that for a while and that was really good for me. But Harry doesn't sleep very well so the idea of the miracle morning is you might get up 30 minutes before your normal day to do a series of activities but if you're getting up at three in the morning um with a screaming teenager it's not always very practical so that didn't last for me um i tend to do have more routines around my own self-worth rather than being a parent so one of the things i do is i get into bed every night and i list five things i've accomplished that day in my head 
So I go through my done list, not my to-do list. Because what I found is that I would get into bed and think about all the things I've got to do tomorrow and all the things I need to do next week. And I would feel overwhelmed and my brain would spiral and I would be in a, my brain would be too busy to sleep. So what I do now is I think, right, what have I done today? Five things minimum that I have accomplished today. So this evening, chatting with you will be on my list. That will be one of the things I've accomplished. You know, um, it might also be that we took the dog around the walk, for, around the block for a walk and that we got some fresh air. You know, so it, it's five things that I've done that I'm pleased about. Um, and that helps me sleep a lot. Okay. It, it sounds also a little bit like, um, I guess we talked about the five, six minute journal uh, yeah. where you write down three things that were good during the day. And yeah. one thing that surprised you or something like that. Oh, someone yeah. kept the door open for me. Um, yeah. Someone smiled to me on the street. Or <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's gratitude. You know, if, if, we, if we were stood outside on a highway and I said to you, don't think about red cars, all <laughs> you would do is red cars. Yeah. So when you put yourself in a place of gratitude, when you put your place, yourself and your mind in a place of, of happiness and a higher vibration, then you'll notice those things more often. Yeah. 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 That's, uh, that's absolutely true. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> let's see where we go from here. Uh, <laughs> as I say, I have, I have my standard questions for all the creative people. What, what's your standard question? Let's see if I can answer a standard question. Yeah, let, let's that. let's get let's go from here. Um, you see, I'm I'm jumping left and right because I'm. Last time we talked, there was so so much. Um, I was. You 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 say you're not, you don't consider yourself a creative person. What yeah. is a creative person for you? If you take it from here, so. Well, how, for me, saying that I'm not creative is is very much a limiting belief. I will I'll start with that because I, I talk <laughs> about self talk, so it's not the best self to say that I'm not particularly creative um, for me creativity is people seeing things a slightly different way and being able to take ingredients whether that's material or whether that's ideas and being able to create something unique and exciting out of them so that can be you know I know creative people who who make things sculptures artwork um, those sort of things and I, and I see a, a vision and a patience in them that I absolutely don't have. I'm very impatient, you know? So I think creativity is about being alive. It's about being patient. It's about being aware. It's about being brave. It's about being vulnerable. Um, all of those things. And some of those things I have. Um, and some of those things I don't. I'm not very patient. <laughs> but yeah, I think creativity is about just having the ability to create by definition yeah very short to create but that's your limiting belief is because you don't have the patience that's why yes. you think you're not correct yeah. that's funny uh, because i also want to get things done fast and i have you know the painting i started a year ago i ripped it apart when it fell on the corner and it was dented a bit and i just all the frustration that I, for six months i didn't paint on it was bowling up and i just you know lost lost it and there's much more to it than only that and i restarted now on a piece of wood actually making a 3d 
Okay. And it's already six or eight weeks ago that I started. But somehow, as I said, if all these things would have happened a year ago, I would act quite different. Now I take it a little bit slower because I create all day long. Yes. Yeah. We have an interview here and I struggle through because it's a quite different interview with a quite different yeah. subject. So I'm learning. <laughs> yeah. And then later on today, now my son is home, I might do something with him or help another friend do it, put some stones out the house or fix this and that yeah. or paint. Um, and patience is definitely, definitely one thing you need to have when you create something of yes. meaning, which does not mean in my world that it always has to be like that. Yeah. The more you create, the faster some, something might come. Like I had a, yes. a talk with uh, our school friend here. She says, creating a piece of art does nece not necessarily need to take a lot of time if you have this one piece. But when you look the whole process and the 10 or 15 or 20 paintings or sculptures or sketches or poems, which led to this one piece. Yeah. Might be years of work, but that mm, piece might absolutely. have come out of you in one day. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, it's a process. It's a process. Yeah. So it's like, like your book, <laughs> when you look at it, it's, yeah. it's 15 years of note taking and journaling. Absolutely, yeah. So, so actually, Definitely. when we look at it as a creative process, how much did you have, and and you sank it into what? How big is the out the book you have, and how many notes did you have up front? Oh wow! So I had um, piles in my lounge floor. I had piles for every year um, of reports. Um, letters, diaries, Facebook statuses, things I'd put, you know, that I'd shared. Uh, so yeah, I had loads. I had, I think I started with about 80,000 words and the book is about 60,000 now. Oh, okay. That's not so much. Um... It's not too bad. No, it's not too bad. 60,000. So can you guide us through the process now when we take in the, the creative work? <laughs> uh, yeah, what... so... You learn how would you do it different i mean you never wrote a book before or did you no i've never written a book before i don't think i'd change the process um i spent a lot of money on getting it produced which i didn't need to do um so i would do that slightly differently but i don't think i'd change the process i, ha I worked with an editor and she she took my book and she broke it down into four sections uh, four chapters and when i when I looked at it, it didn't feel right. I'm very much, I'm very driven by sort of gut instinct. So now I have two, four, six, six, seven, eight, oh, about four, no, probably about 50 chapters. And some of those chapters are just three pages long because I, I think you should be able to digest something in short bites. Uh, okay, so from four chapters into 50 chapters. Yeah. Easily 50 chapters, yeah. But everybody that buys my book said they read it in about two days because they would read a chapter and then they would see that the next chapter was really small and they'd just think, oh, I'll just read one more. And then it oh. motivated them. Okay. Yeah, and so I, small. Yes, I can see that. If you have like a chapter which is 30, 40 pages long, you're like, oh, I'm not going to start that one. Correct. Whereas when it's three pages, you think, oh, go on, then I'll just read that next one and then 
and keep going. So most people read my book in a couple of days. Okay. And did, did you continue with the editor um, afterwards or so when she, she took your book and then you just said, hold on, now you want to have more or you took it back to yourself and... So yeah, so I, I took it back to me um, and she was very good. She just, she was able to cut out all the repetition but keep my voice. So she didn't add anything in. She just made, she just fine tuned it for me. Um, and I, I'm going to write another one, but that will be around self-talk. It won't be um, an autobiography or it won't be biographical. It will be more of a business book next time. Okay. And um, so now we didn't read much about the process besides that you just spent too much money, perhaps. <laughs> and that's normal. That's what everyone says, like spend, spend, uh, invest, sorry, not spend, yeah. invest in yourself money-wise, time-wise, knowledge-wise, um, networking-wise. Yeah. But the process, I mean, you said you had like piles for every year yep. in your living room. And then how would you go on? Did you have like a belly feeling? Um, you were reading so, everything through and then just... Yeah. So I would read everything through and then I would write bullet points in order of what happened that year on a sheet. And I would put that sheet on the top of the pile and then I would go through those bullet points and I would look at each point and I'd think, did that help me grow? Does that show something about my journey or is it just boring kind of normal mundane run of the mill stuff that goes on in a day? Um, and so I eliminated some bits and then that gave me a basic structure, a skeleton, if you like, for each year. And then I wrote about each bullet point so I then padded it out putting the flesh on the skeleton so that I knew that each point either showed some relevance to my journey in terms of a challenge or growth um, or it showed something about Harry or the bullies. Okay that's nice I mean that's definitely a good structure there you have yeah and the process to have everything yeah. read through bullet points go through the bullet points keep away with the boring daily stuff which is not helping and then and I think that's important yeah because when it's your own life it's very easy to get swallowed in the detail it's very <sighs> easy to think everything's important because it's your life so I think that was important for me to have those bullet points and then look at it objectively because when you're writing a book you're not writing it for you you are writing it for your reader and that's a really important distinction you know I think some people can get trapped in that kind of narcissistic this is all about me kind of place. Whereas I was writing, I, I was conscious that I was writing my book for Charlie in 2005. I was writing my book for the mum that was lost now, for the mum that was struggling and not telling anybody. I wasn't writing the book for Charlie in 2017 because I was in a very different place then. So for me as an author, it's 100% about writing for your reader and where they are in their journey right now. To help them to get the next step, yeah. to see that there's a Correct. light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, absolutely. Just to give them, uh, yeah, hope, I guess, a way of navigating things. Okay, and um, from there you you came to to found a charity and be a speaker. So what came first? Yep. The charity. The charity came first um, because I'm a teacher. Uh, so it kind of felt natural for me to work with children, educate children, share what I know, um, make a difference to a younger 
a younger generation, the generation that are going to be growing up with my son. So that came next. Um, and, I, and I love that. The, the charity work lights me up. It makes a massive difference to my well-being and uh, my mental health, definitely. Um, and then speaking really came from, from a place of me needing an income. That's, oh. you know, the, the, book, the book was never about money. Never. I mean, I make nothing on the book. I make about 60 pence per book. Um, I make nothing on the book. So that was never about making money. The charity, um, I, I get paid to do some of the work, but it's, it's nominal. Um, that is all about leaving a legacy uh, and making life better for Harry. And then I was thinking, well, that's great, but I need, I have a mortgage. I have, a, I have food bills with two hungry teenagers. You know, I, I have a life to, to finance. So okay. the speaking came more from, you know, the speaking came more from a practical place of what can I do that gives me flexibility around Harry's needs but also is, is fulfilling what I enjoy doing, which is speaking, which is giving back, which is sharing. Um, and so speaking came really from that place, I guess. How, how did you come in? Did you just decide to be a speaker or did you get invited and then you liked it? Uh, oh, do you know, anybody that knows me will always will tell you I've always been a speaker. I am, <laughs> I'm a show off. I am a chatterbox. I am, I'm the first on the dance floor at a party. I, it's very much, it's very natural for me to be center of attention, but not in an egotistical way. I don't do that because I want, you know, it's all about me. I do that just because I'm a natural extrovert. So I think it, it's always been in me to, to speak. And, and a lot of my jobs have involved talking. Um, so yeah, I think I just thought it, I would like to investigate how I can take one of the strongest parts of my personality, as well as a topic that I'm passionate about sharing and talking about and how I could maybe monetize that. So here in the UK, we have a, an organization called the Professional Speakers Association, speaking, Professional Speaking Association. The so I joined there. The Professional, professional Speaking. Oh. Yeah, uh, PSA. Okay, the Professional Speaking Association. Correct, yeah. So okay. I joined the PSA um, and just went from there really and looked at ways that I could monetize my story in a way that gave value to organizations, to charities, to individuals. Um, and interestingly, I always said that I liked speaking in groups, but I wasn't very interested in one-to-one -one coaching. Um, but last week I had five clients come to me wanting one-to-one -one coaching. <laughs> so I'm taking that as a sign from the universe that currently my energy should go into one-to-one -one coaching um, because that's what people need right now. So that's what I'm doing. Okay. So these people came to you because they saw you speaking or? No, just because they see me on, well, they see me speaking on social media. They see my posts, they see my videos, they like my energy, they like what I have to say. Um, and they just want some guidance at the moment with, with life. Okay. Yeah, and then they'll see you on this uh, interview, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> and get this energy. Yes, super. So what is this? <laughs> what did you find out what is the, the need people have uh, from your story, which gives value to them when you speak to them? Is that, Honestly, did you take that from the book or? Um, both, I guess. Yes, yeah, certainly from the book, from my own experience mainly. 
and then talking with people that read the book, I would say to them, what was it that you got, got from that book? Um, and I did an exercise on my social media channels after a meeting I'd had at the PSA actually. And I said, if you had to, if you had to say in one word, what you, what benefit you get or what value you get from being on my page or what you think about me, what would it be? I, and I did that in quite a meticulous um, data collecting way. And people said that I was positive. People said that I was real. That was a big one that people said I was very real. Um, and people said that I gave them hope. So those were the three things that I drew on. Um, and, and that's what I try and encourage people to do is just to be themselves. Um, yeah, I guess just being honest with themselves and know that they can, if they can get out of their own way and they can have the courage to reflect on themselves enough objectively that they can grow way beyond what they think they're capable of at the moment. Okay. And, um, that's awesome. That's a very good thing. So you said you didn't have the one-on-one -on -one and now you had five people you said, right? Yes. How does that change for you? I mean, now you have written the book, you got the feedback, you have the social media, you had the charity. We actually didn't really ask what, what you do in the charity. <laughs> um, and then you had the speaking. These are all kind of different things. And when you have to coach, is it just coming naturally out of, you just know what to talk to them or? Yeah, so I've spent some time researching the science of self-talk. Um, and I'm, I'm also interviewing people. So I interview people who I've interviewed neuroscientists. I'm interviewing people who've overcome adversity, um, people who've achieved greatness in their lives. So I, I'm talking to people and getting a better understanding of how self-talk works in the real mind. So I'm, I'm a good student. I like learning. I like working in the background. And then I apply a mixture of theory and my experience and my insight into my coaching calls. Okay, super. And um, yeah, but that's something you just started new, right? You didn't do it yeah, before. Yeah, yeah, it found me. It's absolutely found me. Okay. Um, yeah, definitely. Wow. So yeah, charity. What, what is it actually you do? You say you love to educate children, share, make a difference for the younger generation, uh, which lights you up and it yeah. gives you this energy. But what is the charity work? Yeah. So the charity work is um, we have assemblies uh, in schools, so where everybody comes together and they have a, a speaker or the head teacher will will greet everybody. Okay, here we are back. Sorry, people, we had some internet connection issues right when we started to talk about the charity work, what the charity work is about. So, yeah, please try again. <laughs> okay, second attempt. Um, charity work is basically me in assemblies talking to children from the ages of about six up to high school which is 16 over here um, and I go into colleges as well and universities and I share my journey in a very appropriate way because some things are darker than others so um, I'm very mindful of how I share our journey depending on the age of the children and then I, I talk about Harry and I ask the children what sort of things they like. I ask them to tell me, um, put your hand up if you like YouTube and everybody's hand shoots up. Put your hand up if you like trampolining and bouncing and they say, yay. And then I say, put your hand up if you like pizza. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I love pizza. And I say, well, they are three of Harry's favorite things to do. So 
even though he may look different and you think you've got nothing in common with him, if you like those things, then you are the same as Harry. So for me, it's about bringing out the similarities so that they can see that there is a, you know, they've got a connection with him as well as him looking very different. I show some YouTube videos. Um, our social media channel is Our Altered Life, which is the name of my book. So we have a video um, uh, YouTube channel. If anybody wants to check out pictures of Harry and see in action, they can have a look at him there. And I show them some videos and they always love, love the videos. They love, and I say that he, you know, he could be a naughty boy. He can be cheeky he can, and they laugh. And I say, you know, he's, he's just a normal boy like you, you guys are. Um, and then I do some workshops with them around writing because the teacher in me likes, likes to get children writing. So we do some, some of the younger children write a letter to Harry and tell them what they've learned about him and what they think about him and what questions they've got. And then some of the older children write letters in response to some of the internet trolls that we've had. So we've had people saying that Harry should be killed, that he should be burned with fire, that he's an abomination of God, um, that he's disgusting. Wow. So we talk about internet use and they do some work around that. And then the older children, we do some work around, uh, you know, being seen as the person we want to be seen as um, and, and how we do that. So that's basically the charity work. But that I love what I do there. It always leaves a, a legacy, leaves a lasting impression. Wow, that's, that's very deep. I mean, especially when you share with all the, the, the messages you get. Um, yeah, so I don't uh, share that with the children. That's only ever at high school that I talk about that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, not to, to a six-year-old, they cannot understand yeah. that. No. But uh, that's very powerful to show, like, hey, look, people, this is kind of the messages you get on the internet, yeah. and um, you know how to how to handle it. I mean, we, yeah. we hear from so many kids, uh, to, yeah, performing suicide because of messages they get from social media. Yeah. I talk about that as well. Yeah, I talk about that. And I talk about Instagram filters and the need for everybody to look perfect and look beautiful. Um, and I talk about, you know, the fact that some people can look beautiful, be look beautiful on the outside, but be rotten on the inside. Yeah. And that actually, I'd rather have a beautiful soul and a unique face than be gorgeous on the inside, but nobody wants to be with me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've seen that. Uh, we just watched a little cartoon, the Corkies or whatever it's called, this of the dogs okay. and the queen. Oh and yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of funny, but yeah, that's the storyline is missing a bit. But still, I mean, for the kids, I guess it's enough. For a grown up, it's too flat. Yeah, I would say. Yeah. Um, but for the kids, I didn't get really to talk to them, but I really wanted to see, especially also as you say, look beautiful on the outside and be rotten on the inside right because this best friend was pushing him off of the bridge into the ice cold water and breaking the ice so he's gonna drown but he was survived because someone saw him drowning um and and this is real right kids somehow have to learn that that this is wrong yes. yeah e external appearance is not everything it's like from the yes. inside out Correct. and um I talk to them a lot about the fact that one of the questions I ask the children is what could you do to make life easier and nicer for people who look differently? Um, and my number one answer is always smile. So I always say that's my number one. But my number two that I've, I've recently found that comes out is to stand up for Harry. 
and I talk to the children about how hard that is and how wonderful it is if they can be the one person in a group that doesn't follow the crowd or if they can be the one person that's even brave enough to say do you know what I don't think that's cool I'm not going to do it I'm not going to take part and I say there are some adults that can't do that there are some adults that will get swept along with peer pressure um, but if you can start that young, if you can hear that voice in your head that says this isn't right and you can act on that, that will change your life and make you a much better person for it. Um, and they always really like that. Oh, um, yeah, just opened a can of worms there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, I just look at the situation we are in the world. It, it's really related to a lot of what you're saying, right? Yeah. Um, and I've also had discussions with, with different people at different times in my life where I'm asked, yeah, would you do this or would you do that? And um, is this right or wrong? They don't ask for advice. They Sometimes I just have the feeling they know exactly. Let's say they invest in companies which are not, let, let's say, I'm Swiss, right? So mm -hmm. Nestle is a big one. Novartis yeah. is a big one. I have friends working in both, 100%, I'm sure. I don't know about Nestle, but Novartis, because I come from Basel. So that's the headquarters, or it should be. And when I look what they do, especially Nestle is known around the world, like deforestations for Nutella. And, and then they come and say, we, we give water to the people and so on. It's all, it's so wrong when you really go deep and you do the journal, uh, you know, the research on it. Uh, it just makes me crunch inside. And then I have these friends and like, oh, they invest in Nestle because it's so growing. Is it wrong to do so? I'm like, yes, it is. It is as wrong as not standing up for someone which is bullied around and you're like, this is so wrong, but no one has the strength to stand up because there's perhaps this big guy and perhaps he's not even big. It's just bullying. And so people yeah. are afraid of that person. Yeah. Yeah, so absolutely. So important to learn that from a young age to to do what what your belly, what your heart, what the little voice in your head says, or whatever it is. Definitely, yeah. It's about hearing, tuning into that instinct and, and following it. Yeah. So thank you for the work you do there. Uh, so now you're because where you live in the UK, are you going around all UK or are you just local at the moment? At the moment, at the moment I'm uh, North Staffordshire, which is my county, and South Cheshire. So we have sort of county areas. Um, so I'm on the border of two. So I, I kind of work in both, in both patches, if you like. Um, just because it's only me at the moment, it, you know, there's power in my story because it is my story. Um, but in the future, in another five years or so, I would love to work with other people who've had visible difference or facial disfigurements and empower them to do the same. That would be amazing for my charity. Okay, so it's a, it's a one-man show at the moment. It is. Yeah, it is. We have a team in the background, so I have admin people with me. Um, but in terms of front of house, it's just me. Okay. Yeah, so that's kind of hard for you to... But would you also, if it would only be you, besides the, the staff behind, which is organizing perhaps events and, and stuff, travel the world to, to share your message? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I would love that. I would love that, certainly. Did you have a TED Talk? I mean, that's something which is... TED Talk is something I... Do you know, I'm, I'm very, very... <clears throat> excuse me. I'm very intuitive. 
and TED Talk is something that I will do, but not yet. It's, not yet. it's not the right time. My, my instinct, I call my, I, my, my instinct has a name. So my instinct is flow. My higher self is flow. So my, my flow, she, she says, not yet, not yet. So I will, I'm guided by that. Okay, not yet for TED Talk. Not yet. The TED world. Talk. Not yet. The world is not ready. <laughs> I need to warm them up first. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, TED Talk has so much. I mean, it, I don't know when I started watching a bit, but yeah, I'm, um, I'm, I'm consuming so many different medias. It's also different right now, yeah. right? It's like yeah. there, there's stuff on Facebook, there's stuff on YouTube, then there's Vimeo, which does not necessarily have the same as YouTube. Then you have TED Talk, you have different podcasts. Uh, you have London Real, which pulled up his own thing now because he was banned because he was talking to some people which are critical and i think that's wrong because we're in a world of free speech or at least we think we are so it is it's a hard choice we have to where we get information from yes it is it is and it's very overwhelming yes so what would be an advice you could give our listeners in what respect um <laughs> yes normally i speak uh for you know to be creative right um okay. now your case is a bit different you you are certainly creative because you you created a book you created yep. this charity you are doing yep. talks so there's a lot of creation behind that yes, um, but what you, what also comes out when i f- feel a bit in is like speak your voice i have that's the word which comes up that was the first word when i searched for something right now yeah yeah so maybe about being authentic and being themselves yeah Yeah. um i guess my advice would be to do some work on who you are and what you want first so before people try and and become authentic they have to deal with the reasons that stop them the reasons that hold them back um, so it's, you know, thinking about what stops you being authentic and then unpicking that and asking, why is that an issue? Why is that important? What's the evidence for your assumptions? So often people will think, I'm not going to share too much. I'm not going to tell people that I'm divorced because people will judge me. I'm not going to tell people that I'm a single mother because people will think less of me uh, or they'll think I failed. And actually, my my take on that is that it makes you more successful to be proud of the life you have now than to be ashamed of it, you know, and, and it's a way of connecting with people. Um, and it's a way of finding those. We, as humans, we want connection. That's what we're searching for. And so it's about being brave enough to, to put yourself out there and to know that you're more than just a business or you're more than just one entity. Okay. And the more authentic you are and also sharing, like I'm a single father perhaps or divorced yeah. or, um, I mean, there's also things like I'm not talking to my, my family anymore, stuff like that, which yes. might yes. be culturally not accepted widely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I work with a couple of people that I'm working with have um, families from different cultures and a lot of what informs their authenticity is their cultural background and what people will think of them and things like that, you know? Um, but to me, as long as you're not slating people, as long as you're not being malicious or mean or nasty, if all you're doing is sharing your truth, then that's powerful because other people are looking for a way to do the same. 
so often I, I so for example I'll give you an example now I'm coaching I'm speaking I'm teaching I'm charity I'm author I'm blogging I do lots but I'm currently on medication for anxiety and my medication was increased about three weeks ago when we were in lockdown and Harry was struggling a lot so I have zero issue in telling people that I take anxiety medication right now so I've shared that all over my social media now the amount of people that then come to me and say I have gone to the doctor because you put that post on I have actually got myself on medication because you were brave enough to do that so literally dozens of people have come to me and said I've asked for help and I haven't told anybody for years I've struggled but you've done that and so now I've done it so I love that I love the fact that by putting myself out there it helps other people and and you know life is bigger than us the world is bigger than us and if we can help other people then that's amazing and, and one of the things I often say is what we see as vulnerability other people see as courage so you know sometimes we feel a bit scared but actually other people go wow she's brave or wow he's brave if he can do it I can do it um, wow. and I think that's a massive gift I think that's wonderful to be able to do that okay yeah it's um yeah when you say vulnerability and courage it's it's the perception it's how we look at things right mm, um it's like going through a certain situation for some people might be very courageous others say yeah but that that's just life that's just how it is right there, there was yeah. nothing to it um we're more likely to say that about our own struggles to be fair we're more likely to say, yeah, but it's just life. I just, I just got on with it. And then exactly. other people from the outside, they look in and they go, no, it was brilliant. You were great. Yeah, we, we, we tend to push it down, uh, our yeah. achievements. Yes. But it's, it's also, I didn't expect to, to have heard from Dave Icke, which is like the conspiracy super expert. And I'm, I have to admit, I was watching some stuff and I was like, oh my God, this guy is crazy, right? But uh, everyone has his own background and knowledge, and we don't know where he has this knowledge from, uh, okay. if we don't make the same research. But he also said one thing, I'm like, wow, I didn't expect that from him. It's like, we have to open our heart, because love is, the, is what we are meant to feel and is what we are meant to have. We are human beings in that life, we, what we are meant to have and share is love. Yes, and compassion absolutely. Yes. Um, it's what makes us different to other species you know it's that that compassion that that connection definitely yeah super so um do you have any books you normally besides your book i mean i Ooh. can imagine you go around with a backpack and then when you meet someone you're just like hey here's <laughs> my book <laughs> that's exactly what i do that's that's yeah you described me there to a t i have a <laughs> I, we talked about um, honesty and vulnerability. So Brené Brown to me is phenomenal. If people haven't listened to her TED talk, they need to find that. Um, but she's written several books. The one that I've got the most out of is called Rising Strong. So it's Brené, Brené Brown, Rising Strong. Um, yeah. I would definitely advise that one. And then the other one that I've read more recently is The Science of Self-Talk. So it's how to stop getting in your own way. So it's called The Science of Self-Talk by um, Ian, and I can't pronounce his surname. I don't know if you can... Ian Tuchowski. 
There we right. go. That's our. Wait, wait. Best. Leave it there so I can copy that. Lindlowski. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll put that in the show notes as usual. Yeah, they were real. I, I just found those really really interesting. They're very easy, simple reads that you'll get a lot out of. Okay, because when I looked at the 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 book, you, you hold up both books for the ones who don't get the audio. Um, the science of self-talk looked a bit uh, scientific to me. Yeah, it does. It does look well. It's by the name, it sounds scientific, but there's just some really practical exercises in there to help okay. people address their own self-talk. So I think that's useful if people are interested in that. Yeah, uh, for me, I had been. Um, uh, how do you say? I got the advice or whatever you want to say to to read the metacognitive um, book from. I don't remember her name now, but it's a Danish um, PhD student, which was okay. in Manchester doing the PhD okay. with uh, Alan something, not Alan Watts, he's a philosopher, but um, someone there talking about depression and metacognitive, meaning to think less, to learn to think less. It's, about, it's not about negative thoughts turned to be positive, it's just mm -hmm. the thinking process. If we think too much and ruminating too much about something, yeah. even if it's constructive and very positive, if you do that for a too long time, over a too long period, we get depressed because we overwhelm our brain. Yeah, yeah. So I'll add that book from my side. Sorry. <laughs> Hi, Jackie. Okay, put that one <laughs> I put that one on. And uh, you got the other Brené Brown from me, uh, Braving the Wilderness, when we yeah. had the last talk. Uh, that helped yeah. me a lot. So, yeah. so how can uh, people reach out to you? So, yeah, if people want to get in touch with me, that would be brilliant. My website is charliebeswick.com. Um, and people can read a little bit more about me there and they can get in touch, drop me a message if they want to. It would be lovely to hear from your listeners. And you, you mentioned also YouTube, right? So I have a YouTube channel. Uh, my social media for me and my family is called Our Altered Life. So if people are interested in looking at Harry and Oliver in action, they can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter. Um, yeah, so that's our altered life. Uh, and I have a YouTube channel for Charlie Beswick as well. I spin many plates. So you basically have a full-time job with keeping the social media running? Pretty much, yes, yeah. Yes, but um, anything else you would like to add for this uh, special talk for me um no just a massive thank you to you for your patience i know this is a little bit different to what you usually um <laughs> usually so i'm just grateful for the opportunity to chat and share my thoughts with you thank you and uh, for my listeners if you enjoyed this talk and want to hear more please let me know of course uh, with extra questions and then uh, we'll make a part two and else see you for the next interview I'm having a flow at the moment, so. <laughs> Love it. Thanks, Oliver. Okay, see you then. Bye-bye. Your son has been born with half a face. Okay, so that's not exactly what the consultant said, but it's basically what it boiled down to. I'd undergone an emergency caesarean a couple of hours earlier and had delivered twin boys. I'd assumed they were healthy. Why wouldn't they be? I don't smoke, hadn't drunk alcohol, ate well, and never, not once, did I think I'd have anything other than two perfectly formed, healthy children. But now I was being told otherwise. 
Mark, my partner, was sitting to my left, having just come back from making all the customary phone calls to announce the safe arrival of two boys. The midwife had popped her head into my cubicle while he'd been gone and said she'd come back when Mark was with me. I remember that her smile made me feel uneasy for a moment, but it passed as quickly as it came. I was still fuzzy from the drugs and very tired, and so I dismissed my brief concern. Once Mark was with me, the consultant came and sat at the foot of the bed, and Sarah, a lovely midwife about the same age as me, sat next to him to my right. I remember being aware that she was watching me intently. Now I know why. The consultant, Dr Mona, explained that twin one, Oliver, was fine, but twin two, Harry, had some problems. I can still see the way that Dr Mona drew an imaginary line down the centre of his face with his hand and swept it across to the left-hand side as if he were erasing what was there. I processed it all in painfully slow motion, as if I were dreaming. His voice was muffled, like he was talking to me underwater. I could hear the odd word, dulled by my delayed understanding and the pounding in my ears. At the same time, he was mentioning something about no eye, a small underdeveloped ear, no nostril, a short and slanted jaw. He mentioned golden something syndrome and hemi something or other. I now know these to be golden heart syndrome and hemifacial microsoma, different terms for similar conditions. Associated with this condition are heart defects, spinal problems and brain damage, but it was too early to know how severely Harry had been affected. He'd also been born with only one artery in his umbilical cord instead of two, and the implications of this were again unknown at the time. Dream. Bad dream. Thick, thick fog. What? I remember looking from Dr Mona to Mark repeatedly, as he told us the news like a person would look to a translator for help understanding a foreign language. I couldn't process this information. Not us. Not me. No. I felt as though I were drowning. This wasn't what was supposed to happen. Parents were told the weight of their babies, that it was time to hold and cuddle them, to gaze into their little eyes and pour themselves into their perfect creation, feeling an elation beyond anything they had ever known. It must be a mistake. I sat perfectly still, frozen in that moment that I would relive for years to come. All I could whisper as fat, slow tears rolled down my face was, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No hysterical outbursts or sobbing convulsions, just a paralysis of disbelief and guilt. Despite being shocked and stunned, I found the guilt overwhelming. Mark squeezed my hand and told me I had nothing to be sorry for. Dr Mona also assured me that it wasn't due to anything I had or hadn't done throughout the pregnancy, but I couldn't think anything else. Where did it all go wrong? Think, Charlene, think. What did you do? What have you done to your child? Hot on the tail of guilt came a much darker emotion. Fear. Dr Mona sat in front of me, describing a baby who only had half a face and for all we knew, no quality of life ahead of him. And yet I was expected to love him. But what if I couldn't? What if I couldn't look at him, let alone hold him or bond with him? What if I was repulsed by this strange-looking baby that I'd not expected or prepared for? Surely everyone would know just by looking at me. I wasn't the, the mother this boy needed. 
When Sarah asked if I wanted to see him, I was absolutely terrified. Seeing him was the last thing that I wanted to do at that moment, but I said yes. What else could I say? What sort of cold, hard, unfeeling, wicked, feel free to add your own adjectives here, person would I have been to admit my fears to anyone? It's only now when I reflect on those moments that I realise they were perfectly normal. By now, I'd called the one person who I felt had the magical power to make this all right for me, to hold me through my nightmare and shush it all away. I don't remember what I said to my mum on the phone in the hospital bed. I know that I whispered, partly because only a thin curtain separated us from a ward full of mothers I no longer had anything in common with. Partly because I knew that the alternative to whispering would drain me of any bit of energy I now had left. I think I said, something's wrong. And I cried. Mum left work immediately to come to us. Many years later, when I faced all those feelings in the safe space of a therapeutic setting, I pictured a vase. Beautiful, big and colourful. But it had been smashed into hundreds of pieces. Every fragment had been retrieved and painstakingly reassembled, so to all the world it still looked like the proud vase it once was. It still did the same job, but it was a fragile version of its former self, changed forever. That moment, that day, was when my vase tipped off the edge of its table, hit the floor and shattered. I don't know how long it was before the wheelchair came to take me to the special care baby unit, the excitement that had filled me fewer than 24 hours ago felt like someone else's life now. And all I had left was fear, dread and a sickness in the pit of my stomach. I forced a smile and got in the wheelchair. It was time to meet my boys. Hey, here's Oliver again at the end of the show. I, If you like this interview or any other episode I had so far, please head out and go to your favourite podcast host podcast provider and put that subscribe button so you will get all my future episodes as well and if you're so friendly and you really like and enjoy and would like more people to be able to to benefit from the interviews i have go out to uh, apple Podcasts, spotify wherever you are and leave some uh, review some ratings which will help to get my show a little bit more seen Thank you very much for that and have a great day.